Welcome to Business Trip, a podcast about psychedelic entrepreneurship. We explore the business models and origin stories of the most interesting companies in psychedelics. I'm Greg Kubin, and my co-host is Matthias Serebrinsky. The Shipibo people are from the Peruvian Amazon, and they have been drinking ayahuasca for healing and spiritual purposes since as far back as 900 BC. Ayahuasca means vine of the soul, and it's a brew that often includes a chacruna leaf, which contains DMT, along with the capi vine. In their ceremonies, the Shipibo serve ayahuasca and sing songs, called Icaros, which guide the healing process and journey. Today's episode features Melissa Stengel, a co-founder of Soltara, which is an ayahuasca retreat center with locations in Peru and Costa Rica, and their ceremonies are led by Shipibo healers. Melissa joined us from their center in Costa Rica. In this episode, we learn about the Shipibo healing methods through plant medicine and song. We discuss the importance of integration and the innovative way Soltara provides that support through an online platform called the Maloka. We also talk about what it was like starting a retreat center during COVID and Melissa's lessons for other entrepreneurs in the psychedelic medicine space. Melissa, I, I think it would be really great to start off if you could share a bit of background about Soltara. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Greg and Matias, for having me on. So Soltara is a Shipibo-led ayahuasca healing center in Costa Rica. We also have a location just recently opened as well in Peru. So most of the team, myself, my business partner, Dan, uh, all come from working in the Peruvian Amazon closely with indigenous Shipibo healers. So we spent several years at another center in Peru, uh, working directly with Shipibo communities down there and holding retreats and really connecting with that way of working with the medicine. And so when we decided to move to Costa Rica in 2018, we really wanted to help to bring that way of working with the medicine to Costa Rica with us. And we also felt that there was a real need for more aftercare and integration support. What all of us had felt with at the time, which was around 2014 to 2017, uh, integration was a topic that was starting to be talked about, but oftentimes there really wasn't a lot of follow-up, uh, both in our retreat and in a lot of the other retreats that were taking place at that time. So when we wanted to start Soltara, we also worked closely with clinical psychologists and psychotherapists who also had extensive plant medicine experience to develop an aftercare program that is informed for the Western or non-Indigenous psyche to really support people transitioning back into their lives back home and really affecting positive change. So that's kind of our two main focuses are, are working directly with exclusively Shipibo healers and exclusively with ayahuasca, no other medicines, and then providing this integration support after the fact. Can you spend a little time describing the Shipibo healing methods and why you feel aligned with working with it and bringing it to others? Yeah, absolutely. It's probably my favorite topic. Um, so I haven't really worked with many other traditions. Um, I have worked a little bit with the Quechua and Colombian uh, traditions with Yahe. However, I've really connected with the way that the Shipibos work, which is relatively stark compared to some other traditions. So they don't 
have an altar. They don't have instruments. They don't have feathers and shakers and things like that. The tools that they work with in ceremony are the healing songs called Icaros. And those are actually considered the main conduit of the healing work done. And so this is a really important aspect of a Shipibo ceremony. The way that they learn these songs is they go through plant dietas, which is going into isolation for a period of time, anywhere from 10 days to over a year, restricting their energetic exchanges with other people, restricting their diet, salt, sugar, fat, really cleaning their vessel to be able to then pick up the subtle energies of the different master plants in the jungle. It's like a medical school, right? So they're learning and studying what these other plants have to teach them. And through dedicating themselves to that, drinking ayahuasca, which for them, it really just connects them to the spirit world and helps to helps with the process of connecting to the plant spirit world and these different master plants and their own healing so that they can clean their vessel to be able to then pick up the subtle energies of the plants. And if they do this for a period of time, then sometimes the plant will gift them a song. And so that song allows them to work with the energy of that plant and have that energy penetrate the energetic body of the patient and correct the energetic knots in the patient's body. So in the old days, actually, only the healers would drink ayahuasca to connect with the plant spirits and the patients would simply receive the song. Um, now, of course, you know, patients also drink ayahuasca to go deeper themselves and connect as well. But so that's kind of the main thing. So within a ceremony, um, the songs are, are really the most important part. And then they also work with tobacco or mapacho, which is their jungle tobacco, nicotina rustica. And that's also a connector plant for them. And then they'll work with uh, what's called agua florida or perfume water. So They'll often use that to kind of cleanse the space, cleanse themselves, and blow onto people after they sing to them to seal in that work. So that's that's like the general mode. It usually happens, the ceremonies usually take place at night. Um, and then there's smaller group sizes as well from other traditions. So sometimes Colombian traditions can have upwards of 70, 80 people um, within Soltara and other healers that I've worked with. It's anywhere from four people, you know, even one person up to like usually around 20, 25 is, is where I've seen the limit for most of people healers. What's your background? I come from a very Western framework, was raised Roman Catholic, which then propelled me into atheism in my college years um, as a trauma response. And uh, I was very interested in cancer research. I wanted to help cure cancer. So I did lung cancer and brain cancer research for a while um, and then switched into biomedical engineering in college. I was interested in helping people and solving problems, but very much from like the Western STEM perspective. And so I ended up going into a management program to learn some management skills and kind of just felt a little bit lost both with the like slow pace of science. Like I felt like I was doing all this work to maybe get a paper, to maybe go in a journal, to maybe help someone someday. And it just didn't feel like I was doing enough. And so then I wanted to gain some management experience. And then that was like a very toxic corporate culture. So then at that point, I was just kind of in despair. of like, okay, so what am I supposed to be doing? 
And it was literally like the plants recruited me. Like I thought my life was going one way and it was like a, a stray Reddit post on the ayahuasca sub forum from Daniel Cleland, who's now my business partner that changed my life. And I did a trip with him totally out of, <laughs> totally out of intuition. Like the first time I ever listened to my intuition <laughs> and my partner was like, you're going to go do drugs in the jungle with some dude you met on Reddit. Like, no, that's crazy. But yeah, I swear it was the first time I listened to my intuition and we kept in touch for a couple of years after that. And then when he needed an operations manager, I was like, oh, that's what I'm doing now, but I hate it. So if you can hire me, I will sell my things, learn Spanish and move to the jungle. And um, that was in 2015. So that was when I went to Peru. So your background is in science and engineering, and you've mentioned the word energy. How do you define energy in this context? Hmm. (laughs) Yeah, so I do understand that, and this is also what the healers would say, that we have an energetic body, right? And this is kind of an amalgamation of our emotional, physical, mental, spiritual bodies. The way that I think of it is the, the life force that moves through us chi, prana, right? Like this, this kind of idea of like that, that which animates us, that when you go into a room and you feel the vibe of a room, right? Or you're like, you're kind of feeling someone's vibe. I mean, to me, that's a, a very similar way of thinking about it. It's like what kind of, I want to use the word energy to define it, but it's like what kind of energy someone gives mm-hmm. off. Um, what kind of energy I feel within myself. So yeah, it's a combination of like what my nervous system is doing, um, what my emotional state is, what my mental thoughts are, like how they're sort of shaping my perceptions in that moment, how my body is feeling. It's this combination of me as a person. One personal experience is that I've had the ayahuasca brew that you know came from the jungle, from Peru and from Ecuador and even from Hawaii. And each one of them, to me, had a, had a very distinct personality, something that was very unique to them. So, you know, it's, it's this idea that each one of these plants has a different spirit, uh, it's a different spirit, or has something, something unique to teach. But even the same uh, ayahuasca brew, depending on where it comes, uh, has something unique. So I'm, I'm curious if you can talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. I I have had the same experience as well. I've partaken in different brews from different countries, Peru, uh, Colombia, Hawaii as well. And then also medicine that's been grown in Costa Rica too. And that has a different flavor as well. Or medicine that spent time growing in Costa Rica where the mother plants were from Peru or Ecuador. And I do feel like we are all a product of our environment. So why would plants be any different? You know, there's different soil content. There's a different community of plants that surround it. We know that plants talk to each other. We know that they have a sense of community as well in in a similar but different sense than humans. And so, yeah, very much so there's different flavors of the medicine uh, depending on where it's been grown and where it's rooted and also the energy that was put into it by the people who tended it and the energy that was put into it when they actually made the medicine as well. I have experienced that to have a significant effect on on how the medicine works. That is almost the opposite 
of how uh, some companies in, in the drug development space are working with some of these medicines where it's a synthetic form. It is only one sort of molecule. For example, P. cubensis, the mushroom, mm -hmm. a company like Compass is only working with a synthetic form of the active molecule, which is psilocybin. So mm -hmm. uh, this idea of the effects of the entire plant working together in conjunction with the uh, maestro or the healer is uh, almost the opposite. I love that. I love that you brought that up because it's really interesting to think about. And I also feel that it's somewhat reflective of our culture, right? Like I have an amazing mentor, um, Miok, uh, who she had, she's actually writing a memoir about healing scleroderma with ayahuasca after her Harvard medical doctors told her that she was incurable. And, you know, she and I have had a lot of discussions about this because there's, a, I think, a very uh, Western mindset of like, how do we isolate the one molecule and skim it off the top to then like make sure that we can extract the effects of it based on the science aspect? And I, I think, of course, there's some merit to that because, of course, there are active ingredients and things that have more effect on the human body than others. Um, but I also think it's a very, it's a very extractivist, very reductionist, uh, also very colonialist approach to medicine. And in effect, it's dead medicine. And what we're working with here is like, of course, the healers also understand that there are chemical properties that are what help to cause the hallucinogenic effect, but like, it's a whole plant. I mean, you're working with a plant spirit, you're working with things from a holistic perspective. And so, you know, you asked about what is energy before? Well, do we really know what energy is even? To me, that actually seems illogical that you could separate down to like one molecule, extract that and expect to have the same effect as like a relational container where the harmines and the harmalines are, are working together and you have the plant that has been grown in this land and there's the active intention and service um, and reciprocal relationships and offerings and ritual that go into it. And so we are affected by all of mm -hmm. that. And I think it's, you know, there's a purpose that it can serve to increase access. And we've seen that there are positive therapeutic effects by isolating that. But I also feel like, man, that's less than half the equation. And we're potentially losing out on a, a real much deeper understanding of like the potential for these traditional healthcare systems and what they really offer. Yeah. I can't think of a therapeutic that includes Icaros or a sound component or things of that nature. It's just not aligned with the Western medical system, I would say. Well, MAPS is actually changing that, right? Like in uh, MAPS is, uh, clinical trials, they allow for the therapist to work in, in pretty much any healing modality or any kind of adjunct therapy to the MDMA part. So, you know, that could be Hakomi, that could be expressive arts, that could be Gestalt. There's all these different ways that therapists today have the opportunity to work with MDMA. We're sort of on the frontiers when it comes to the science aspect of this. And what's so exciting and I think expansive about this work is that we are understanding that psychedelics are an incredibly personal experience. Everyone is going to have a very unique experience, even if they're taking the same exact psychedelic. 
they're highly suggestible and it's highly influenced by the set and setting. That's not the case for most other allopathic medicine to date. I mean, I don't think that's the case for any other. I mean, maybe the like the placebo effect is really the closest thing we have to understanding how our own environments, internal and external, affect the outcome of, of medicine. And so I think this is actually a real opportunity to understand like, hey, let's expand what we understand healing to be. And let's also reactivate the agency of the patient in the healing process. Because in this context, and this is part of what I'm I'm writing a book about, in many ways, Western medicine says the answer is outside of you. It is in this specialist. It is in this chemical. It is in this pharmaceutical. It is in this surgery. And you have you know no control over your own healing. And psychedelic and traditional healthcare systems is like, you, you're going to get out of it what you put in. I mean, you better show up for this healing. Otherwise it's not going to work. And to understand that the body wants to heal. So the goal is to actually remove everything that's blocking you from doing that. You know, it totally flips it on its head. And I think that we can't just necessarily apply the same principles or methods or approaches that we do for other types of pharmaceuticals and drug development um, as we do for psychedelics because it's it's a completely different um, modality of healing. Okay, so let's change gears for a few minutes. Uh, I'd love to talk more about the, the journey, right? Like, you know, how it works for someone that it's interested in Soltara. So let's start with the screening process. How does it work? Who is kind of allowed to participate and who's not? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. We do have a pretty stringent uh, medical intake screening process. There are certain diagnoses that are contraindicated with working with ayahuasca. So that includes things like psychosis, schizophrenia, Mm -hmm. bipolar, even certain types of like extended insomnia can increase the risk of a psychotic break. Also medical conditions, heart issues, liver, pancreatic, like certain types of physical issues are not candidates. And then we also really want to understand if people are taking certain medications. Generally speaking, there are a few like some thyroid medications that are okay to continue with ayahuasca, but in general, we really want people to be entirely off of their medications for at least two weeks, but with SSRIs, antidepressants, and other mental health medications, it actually should be longer than that. So there's different timelines depending on that, but we screen for all those things. And then we also really want to make sure that people are prepared mentally, have a support system, and understand the potential for not necessarily feeling better right after the retreat. So this is something that we've noticed uh, more and more as this work and these medicines become more mainstream is that people are coming in with extremely high expectations and assuming that it's this magic bullet. And for some people it is, you know, but I would say that's the minority of cases. And, you know, we don't promise miracles. We don't even promise that you're going to feel better after your retreat because healing is such a nonlinear journey. And so part of our intake screening process is talking with a therapist or an intake specialist who has extensive experience in this field to understand and prepare you for the idea that sometimes you might feel worse before you get better and that this is part of it. And this is also why we have a a pretty extensive integration program as well after the fact, because um, oftentimes, you know, it's, it's not a 
it's not always a smooth ride. So, um, yeah, so we, we also consult with a medical advisor. Um, we have like a several page intake form. Um, it's reviewed by a therapist and we also do a, uh, preparatory call. And then we also have monthly preparation circles inside our integration platform, uh, the maloka.com. And, um, and then we offer a network of other resources and we send emails out beforehand as well. So we really try and like give you as much education as possible. We also give you recipes for like dieta friendly recipes as you sort of prepare your body. You know, there's certain things that you have to cut out beforehand. So my partner, she's pregnant. Maybe once this airs, she will already have, you know, delivered. But one... Congratulations. Thank you. Um <laughs> Thank you. Very excited. One question I have about that is, do you screen for pregnant people? Can pregnant people attend? And also how you know this happens in the Shipibo tradition? Yeah, great questions. Um, so within Shipibo communities, I do know that there is, uh, there. it's not all the time, but pregnant women have drunk ayahuasca. And ayahuasca has also been given to children as young as four years old. I mean, for them, it's a medicine. I kind of have joked in the past, like in my own words, it's kind of like a brain vitamin. So I have my own opinions on that. But at Soltara, we we don't serve uh, pregnant women or anyone under 18, just as a precaution, because there's potentially some purging involved. And, you know, we just, we just don't want to take the risk with um, pregnant women. But we have had partners come where the husband has drank and then the woman comes in and receives a song because again, to, that's really the the main conduit of the healing. So um, that's been really beautiful to see that happen and, and still have them receive some healing too. The other thing that came to mind, you mentioned this idea that it's not a magic bullet. Uh, sometimes you may feel worse before you feel better. And sometimes you may not feel anything. That to me is also fascinating. This idea that uh, two people, one of them being roughly half the weight of the other one, takes drinks three cups, nothing happens. And then the other one takes you know half a cup, much bigger person and they really feel the effects. How do you make sense of that? <laughs> I love that because it's one of those medicines where it's like, I really, I really feel the spirit behind the medicine. Also empirically speaking, because of how not dose dependent it is. And I've had that myself. But when I first started working with the medicine, I was down in Peru and I was drinking like two or three cups and almost like brute forcing my own healing journey. And I was, you know, starting to like not really get anywhere anymore and like not get answers and just feel kind of stuck. And my coworker at the time, she said, you know, why don't you try drinking less? And I was like, oh yeah, okay, that's not going to work, you know, <laughs> logically. <laughs> but she was like, well, you have this opportunity and like, you can maybe trust that you're a lot different now than when you first started drinking. And so maybe just, maybe just trust and, and see what happens. And you know, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work, but give it a try. And I had, I truly, I drank half a cup and I had like the most powerful experience. I still remember it, like the most powerful experience I've ever had to date. And I got this very clear message that I was replacing trust with volume. And so much of this work is about trusting this process and surrendering to it and not trying to control it. And so I think it's like such a cheeky, way for the medicine to be like, uh-uh, <laughs> nice try. When you're saying the surrendering to the process, what comes up for me is just the 
concept of surrender and how prevalent it is in many spiritual traditions, right? Whether it's Zen, Buddhist, or Shipibo, as you're talking about. And yeah, it's interesting to find the hallmarks where there's that overlap. Yeah, it's been this huge journey for me. And like, I, I know it's so reflective of the culture that we grow up in, releasing that control and sinking into the trust. In this case, that like, this is for your healing, you know, even when you're facing these challenges. And to me, that is a skill that is transferable to the rest of life without denying the truth of the challenges that are presented to us. Also sinking into the perspective of like, okay, well, what, what can I learn from this? Or, you know, I, I don't necessarily like love the trope that like this is happening for me, not to me, but I do think that aspects of that sentiment can be useful in reframing um, certain situations so that we can forge meaning out of them and, and help they can assist us in our growth. And so, you know, even with like, for example, the name Soltara. So Soltar means to let go or release. And we were circling around this name for so long. We were like Solara, Solmara, like sun and sea in Spanish, Ayamara. We wanted it to be three syllables. And I just felt this. I was like, I feel like the perfect name exists and I just have to discover it. Like, I, I feel like it's already there. And so I'm like going through and like, it's getting close to time and I have to like decide on the name. And I'm smoking some mapacho one day and I'm like, you know what? Maybe I just need to let go of the idea of the perfect name. Let go, let go. And I went to Soltara and it was like to let go or release. And I was like, as soon as I let it go, there it was. That's amazing. How many people are participating in ceremony at a time? And how do you think about group dynamics? Yeah, so right now we have three locations, two in Costa Rica and one in Peru. And the number that we started working with, that we've worked with for uh, even down in our days in Peru, was a maximum capacity of about 21 people. This feels like a really good number because it's a big enough group that you'll always find someone to connect with. Like everyone will find someone to connect with. There's diversity, but also by the end of the retreat, everyone knows everyone and it really does feel like a family. So that's been like a pretty sweet spot for us. And we have that at our Playa Blanca location, which is our original location in Costa Rica. And then we have another location, Sugar Beach, which has a maximum capacity of 17 people. And then in Peru, it's a smaller retreat and it's a bit more intimate. We have a maximum capacity of 13 people there. And so again, with other traditions, you might find a lot more, but for people healers, it's like that size group tends to be a sweet spot. Group dynamics are always an interesting thing to navigate. What I find so beautiful is the way that they can actually alchemize healing, even when there's challenges, realizing and coming to and understanding that everybody is here trying to heal, you know, for a similar purpose or grow spiritually, you know, but they're here for real serious reasons. And that you're, you know, you're going through this process and these challenges together and you're witnessing each other in these vulnerable states. Sometimes there are challenges, but often it's much more the case that people actually truly understand what community is and what it's like to feel seen and accepted for who they are, sometimes for the first time in their lives. And so I think that, you know, there's a lot of gifts and the challenges are part of that too. Yeah, another question I had around the ceremony dynamics is that 
Soltara, you offer, I think, minimum is five nights, and then, you know, that can go all the way to 14. And then there's other kind of opportunities, mostly here in the U.S., but also in, in the jungle, where you can go and attend only one ceremony. I'm curious on your thoughts about those two different dynamics and how you see, like, benefits of each one. I think that there certainly can be benefits to doing a single ceremony. For us, we specifically did not want to do that because it's like building a relationship, not only with the medicine, but with like the whole healing process and yourself. And it takes time. Really, the first ceremony is like kind of a introduction. You know, you're essentially like meeting the medicine for the first time. You're getting used to the space. Everything is different than probably what you imagined or expected and new and, you know, potentially again, a little bit dysregulating. And so, you know, it can take some time to get into the deeper layers of the work because once you understand, okay, this is how my body works with the medicine. And this is where I feel like is a good working dose for myself. So we offer seconds after the first night and encourage people to go slowly, essentially, because titrating this work tends to be a little bit more effective in the sense that people go into this having that sense of safety and being able to then more fully surrender to it. But it, it takes time. And to face your face your shadows is no easy feat. We find that at minimum three ceremonies is like, okay, you know, you, you, you're de- you'll definitely have gotten some work done by that point, whether that's like outwardly obvious or not. Minimal viable ceremony. <laughs> Minimum effective ceremony. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, what I have seen happen, and this isn't always the case, but I have seen, you know, people that just go for one ceremony, it's like they opened up Pandora's box and then they, and then they're open. And, you know, and so for us, even there's like an arc to the last ceremony is called the Arcana ceremony. And they essentially, the healers will, uh, sing specific rows to seal in the work done and provide like a protection around it so that you're not like totally energetically open when you go to the airport and, you know, back home with all of these different types of energies. So you, you also want to make sure that, you know, you're kind of closing what you open. And you are in that space where there's a lot of different energies, a lot of different spirits happening all the time. So how do you protect yourself? I live in Costa Rica full time, but I have a house that's offsite. And so for me, that's really healthy to be able to like go visit, but like separate myself a little bit from um, the work. And I also have like my own energetic hygiene practices that I do. And the rest of the team isn't here full time. So they'll come on rotations of two to three months and then go for two to three months. So it's a nice kind of rhythm for them as well to step out of the bubble. <laughs> yeah, one of the things that really impressed me when I learned is how the maestros also do very, very deep work in order to protect themselves, how strong boundaries they have and how all those things are kind of like learned skills and how important that is for them doing their job and being able to heal other people. You know, the diets is actually a huge part of that. Um, when they diet, it, a lot of times it's also not just to be able to transmute that energy through their songs, but it's also to have as their own plant allies within their energetic field to be able to protect them from everything that's getting released in that ceremony. Dieting is super, super important. I've dieted as well. I feel as though I have plant allies that help me with that. And it can be a very cleansing process too. So in between 
working with us and doing their own work, they will dye it to essentially also create stronger reinforcements and cleanse and purge some of that energy that they've gathered through their work. It's an underappreciated part of this field, at least for some people, how much it takes, how you know, taxing it is for maestros or ayahuasqueros or psychologists or therapists in the Western world, the work they do and kind of like how they help people process trauma and that part of the job and like everything they need to do to recover from that is amazing. My dear coworker and co-founder of the Maloka Integration Platform, Sylvia, she's a spiritual practitioner. And we actually did a workshop specific to spiritual and energetic hygiene for people after they go home. And we had therapists show up. And basically what she said is like, you wouldn't wait six weeks to take a shower. Like, why would you wait that long to cleanse your energetic body? That's, you know, that makes no sense. So yeah, it's a huge part. And I agree, it's not talked about enough. How does the integration community work, the one that you've created? Yeah. So we launched this January. We used to have like a a Facebook group and we offered three months of follow-up resources um, via email. We really wanted to get off Facebook. um, One, because we don't like what they were doing with people's data. And two, we wanted to be more autonomous and private. And so we created this platform built on three pillars. So the first one's community. So it does have many of the aspects of a social media platform. It's got a live feed. You create your own profile, direct messaging. You can connect with others. There's like a community directory. So there's kind of this connection of continuing after the retreat. Every retreat group gets their own private group on the platform so they can stay connected with their other retreat participants. The other piece is support. One thing that really instigated this whole project for me was not just wanting people to connect with Soltara, but like wanting us to connect our our community with each other Um, because everybody has such beautiful medicine to offer. And there's so many people in our, in our community that are, you know, healers or practitioners or teachers themselves um, in different ways. And so how can we start to connect those people with our community and, So we have a a network of practitioners, teachers, and organizations that people can connect with. And these are people that we trust, that we've vetted, that have different offerings, courses, sessions, things like that. And we'll do regular virtual events as well, uh, monthly. So we'll have monthly integration circles. And then the third pillar is reciprocity. The beautiful thing about this healing work is that everyone wants to pay it forward once they have experienced it. And so connecting people with organizations and people who are on the front lines of Amazon conservation or indigenous activism and reciprocity or connecting veterans with psychedelic treatments. These are organizations that we have relationships with. And if people want to pay their healing forward, like here's where you can start doing that if you'd like. So yeah, those are, those are the main things. Cool. Are you able to share how many members you have? Right now we have over a thousand. It's growing pretty steadily. We have people joining every week and it's been a really actually fun kind of learning curve. Uh, Obviously taking an in-person community to virtual when you're not utilizing a platform that already exists for them. That's, That's great. Okay, Melissa, let's talk business. Let's do it. 
<laughs> a retreat by itself, it may be uh, expensive or not affordable for everyone. How do you think about the cost of the retreat? And are there ways to lower those costs or expand accessibility to them? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's interesting because like I said, we all came from working in Peru where things are much less expensive than Costa Rica. To run operations in Costa Rica is over four times the cost of what it was to run operations in Peru. And we have nicer accommodations here as well, but we didn't want to charge four times the price as we did in Peru. So it was really interesting because we had this community of people who came through our Peru center. And when we opened Soltara here, we basically mimicked Peru prices. And we quickly like realized that that was completely unsustainable. So we had to increase prices. I think in the first two years, we increased prices two times, but we always offered like, hey, you know, if you are planning on booking and you want to lock in the lower price, you can be grandfathered in, put down a $300 deposit and you have this pricing for life. So we were doing different programs where it was trying to ensure that we weren't just completely pricing people out that had been a part of our community. And so after we raised prices twice, that was a little bit more sustainable. And then COVID happened <laughs> and we had to shut down for eight months. We almost died. We almost were dead in the water. And that was a whole another process of like surrendering and trust because there was like several synchronicities that happened that we even made it through. And it took us a long time to be able to refund everyone that wanted a refund too. If we just refunded everyone right when we had had to close down all the bookings we had for the next eight months, like we would have gone bankrupt. So we wouldn't have even been able to pay back everyone at that point because we were just under two years old. And so that was a really, really difficult time for the world and for the business when we started up again, which was due to some very lucky synchronicities and we barely made it through. And in July of 2020, we were like, we have to start selling retreats again. Otherwise, we're not going to have enough money to even make it because it was still costing money. And so we were like, okay, we'll just put our flag in the ground for November 1 because that's as far from now as it is since the pandemic started. And maybe they'll reopen borders by November 1. And we just started selling for November 1. And we just prayed. And literally like August, September, they started opening some flights. October came, November 1, they opened the borders to the to everybody. And so we were able to keep that promise and actually open. And ever since then, we've been pretty much completely full, which is also such a testament, I think, to the amount of trauma in the world. But so since we were able to survive, then we started a scholarship program. We started this Maloka platform, which is hopefully offering some more accessible options for people. We do payment plans. We have also a scholarship fund, which is in addition to the scholarship program. So we just give away a free retreat every month. And then any money that goes into the fund can help in addition to that. And we also were able to reopen a center in Peru, which is, again, like a significantly lower price point. Um, than Costa Rica. So for people, and it's the same program, you get access to the same preparation and integration and everything. And you're in like an off-grid, a little bit more rustic center, but it feels really, really good to be able to come full circle like that and be able to reopen down in mm -hmm. Peru and offer that as an option for people. Mm -hmm. I guess we can go to the website, but the costs are about $2,000 to $6,000? More like $2,000. 
3,000 to 7,000. We have an eco tambo option, which is like shared bathrooms and electricity, but no AC for a week here at Playa Blanca. That's 3,250. And then like a double shared suite with like air conditioning and your own bathroom and a king bed and all that is 4,250. And then for the private suite, it's like 6,000. And then if you want like the premium suite, which is larger, it's like 6,900 or something like that. It's all inclusive. The business mind in me is like, how profitable of a business can this be? What's the vision ultimately? Is it to grow it to 20 locations, 100 locations? It's so interesting because we are able to pay everyone well, which feels really good because we want good people and good people want good pay. I think that that's really important to be able to do that. And to have resources to do things like build an online integration platform. And, you know, I do have a vision at some point to start a nonprofit. I think that's maybe a few years down the line. In terms of like expansion, this has actually been a year of like unexpected expansion. Like we had a wait list of hundreds of people. And so it was like, wow, how do we serve these people? Because like, that's a lot of people when we just have 20 people a week. So out of necessity and what was called for, um, we were able to expand. Do I want to do this 20 more times? I'm not totally sure that I do want to do that, but it does feel good to be able to like have the capital to expand. It's a dicey situation in some cases because as we as we have more resources, it's like, okay, I want to reinvest that into the infrastructure. But we have to be careful because there's a lot that I think you know, I want to do, and we have to make sure that it's like a financially sustainable thing. I think it, it can be a good business for me. That's like a means to an end. It's been guided by like what seems to be needed by the world at this time. You know, you said it can be a good business. What are the things that you've done? So this is self sustaining, right? What are those things that uh, you feel are Soltara's secret sauce, not so secret sauce that, you know, maybe other retreats may not be doing or, or a clinic it's not doing? We finally got our pricing right. Well, that took a little bit of like trial and error to find that sweet spot of what is actually sustainable that gives us resources to then continue to do this work in a good way and also continue to grow in the way that we've done this work, a lot of people seem to resonate the niche we've found, which is exclusively Shipibo, exclusively ayahuasca in Costa Rica with integration support. That's a very kind of specific niche. Um, the people that it's attracted have been of amazing integrity and so much experience. People who've just been living in the jungle with Shipibo healers for de like a decade. So it's the people who come, I think is... <laughs> 100% our secret sauce. That's not so secret. The team is absolutely amazing. And as the team grows, it's like this positive feedback loop. The ayahuasca medicine world is actually pretty small. A lot of people know a lot of people in that world, especially people who live in and around the Iquitos area. Having a good compensation package has been crucial as well for staff retention. And the staff has really been like what makes it Let's talk for a minute about the psychedelic industry. We can go in many different directions, but let me start with a specific question. What does an ethical psychedelic company look like? Oh man, there's like so much to that question. What is your purpose? What is your intention for coming into this work? Why are you doing this? Is the money aspect a means or an end for you? Are you incorporating the right voices in the conversation? Are you 
understanding where these medicines come from. If you're working with a medicine that has like a lineage, are you practicing reciprocity with the culture? If you are profiting off of that medicine that has been shared with you, are you supporting the movement? If you're an active player in the movement, you have a responsibility to the movement, whether you realize it or not. Some of the failings of some players in the movement that I see right now is not really understanding their own responsibility and impact that they have on the mainstream conversation that's happening around these medicines. I'm not necessarily saying that this is like the same for everybody, but I feel like as a, as a white person, my contribution is helping to create the space that then the Shipibo healers who are the masters of their craft and have spent all of generations learning this work and are clearly the best. I'm not interested in trying to do what they do. I want to help them do what they do best and create that space so that they can continue their tradition. Like I understand Excel, I understand emails, I understand finances, and I can help them with that. I understand social media. That's a way to help be a bridge between these two cultures and help them to continue to expand their tradition. For me, that feels ethical. I'm not saying that that's the only way, but that's what we're built on. To me, something that is also interesting is that Yes, there is this traditional way of doing it. There's a Shipibo tradition. But there may be a world in the future where ayahuasca is covered by insurance and people don't need to pay for going to a retreat or going to a clinic that is offering this. And I'm curious on how you reconcile those two things. Oh, yeah, that's like a juicy question because then you're incorporating the medicalization model. And that comes with a lot of strings. (laughs) I foresee issues when the FDA tries to regulate what qualifies a healer, an indigenous healer to be a healer. You know, those dynamics can be extremely damaging to the work. How the legal system and the insurance business actually works with the providers of this type of medicine work. I have some hesitations about how that could turn out, but I I also could see a way forward, but it would come from an understanding of respect for the knowledge. So we like to conclude our interviews with a rapid fire round of questions where Matthias and I go back and forth. You'll see some of the questions are really not rapid, but (laughs) we'll do your best to bring it down to a tweet level response. First question is, what are the rules and regulations in countries like Costa Rica and Peru around serving medicine and what in the West is perceived to be controlled substances? In Peru, um, ayahuasca is protected as a cultural heritage. So it's fully legal in Peru. In Costa Rica, it is not illegal. However, it is not protected from ever becoming illegal. It is not considered a cultural heritage. So it's actually up to us to be able to basically ensure that we're practicing medicine well so that there's no reason for them to make it illegal in the future. Other psychedelic substances are illegal in Costa Rica and Peru, as I understand. What is the biggest life change that you have seen from a participant at Saltara after their ayahuasca experience? Ooh, there's two. So this one 
woman came through, almost couldn't walk from debilitating Lyme disease and was dancing at the ecstatic dance on the last day of her retreat. And she stayed for three weeks. So this was back when we had three-week programs. She went off to then start her own ecstatic dance circles in Hawaii. It was like a night and day transformation. And then Mio, who I mentioned earlier, she came through Sultara twice, but her transformation journey is much longer. But yeah, she had scleroderma which is like an essentially like a mummification of your entire body and everything just shuts down. It's a terrible autoimmune disease. She was bedridden for years. And after her second time at Sultara, she was like walking up and down her hills and had movement in her hands again. And it was just like amazing. Do you have a hypothesis of what's happening physiologically based on those two examples of like a reset in the system? I do. Uh, it's part of what I'm writing a book about because I just find it so amazing that when people get to the root, the emotional root of their physical illness and heal the emotion, the physical follows, especially when it comes to autoimmune stuff. It's your body turning against itself. You can heal that. I've seen it happen, but it takes going to the emotional root of it in many cases. What lessons do you have for other entrepreneurs in the psychedelic medicine space? Get used to meeting your growth edge in every single capacity over and over again, because it's going to happen because you're, you're in a, a medicine space just in general, even if you're not always drinking the medicine, learn how to regulate your own nervous system, learn how to keep your energetic hygiene, like on point, really find the tools that regulate you because the what i've really found is that my work is my healing and then the integration of my healing is my work so everything that i do within my own healing process like it trickles down in a very real way and trickles out into the business on an energetic level honestly this work can be such a mirror for your own journey and what you then output as a result of that is reflected in your business and so I've just seen, I, I, this happened to me, like I worked myself so hard. I like literally beyond redlined myself. My body said, no, I ended up with this pinched nerve in my neck and shoulder, thoracic outlet syndrome. And it was this huge wake up call for me because I was like, wow, I'm hurting myself working for a healing center. That is out of integrity. I am not walking the walk. That's not okay. I need to get right within myself and learn my own boundaries and make sure I can stay regulated and grounded because this work is really intense on every level. And so make sure you're doing it for the right reasons and make sure that you have the tools and support system that, you know, you're not being a hypocrite by <laughs> killing yourself working for a healing center. You mentioned energy, plant spirits, Icaros a few times. I'm curious on how you explain this work to someone that is more materialistic oriented, someone that doesn't necessarily connect with these terms. I really enjoy like having more of a scientific background in some cases because it really helps me to meet people where they are. So I don't talk about it like that with people who aren't going to be open to that or who I feel are maybe not necessarily on that wavelength. For me, when it's talking to someone who thinks more in like scientific terms, I'll talk about neuroplasticity. I'll talk about changes in personality that are documented. I'll talk about the way it connects your prefrontal cortex with your amygdala through the bridge of the hippocampus and allows you direct 
conscious access to your emotional memories that are in the amygdala. I think you can talk about it from science, from psychology, or from spirituality and all doorways to the same process. One ocean, many shores. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) And then like once they do it, and I'm like, yeah, I didn't believe in spirits either until I met a spirit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, sounds familiar. (laughs) (laughs) What will the world look like in 20 years? Oh, God. (laughs) I see a fork in the road. (laughs) And I think it could go either way. But I think that we're doing some really important work, like having these conversations and continuing to spread awareness and ask the tough questions and talk about the important integration of these worlds. And so I'm hopeful that this psychedelic renaissance can be a huge catalyst. We just need a critical minority of people who are willing to connect, reconnect to themselves and their communities and each other and the world and nature. (laughs) And so I think I'm just trying to do everything I can to make it so we turn in the right direction. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Melissa. The conversation felt very full for me in a good way. So thank you so much for joining the Business Trip podcast. And if you have any final thoughts or message you want to share with our listeners, now's your time. Thank you so much, Greg and Matthias. And yeah, I just want to say thank you for the work that you're doing, like helping to connect. I think it's so important that heart-centered people have a meeting of the minds and continue to discuss these things. So yeah, just a sincere thank you for the work that you do and connecting these threads and building the mycelial network. Mycelial network. This is Business Trip, a podcast about psychedelic entrepreneurship. If you like this episode, you can help us by subscribing to the podcast and leaving a review. You can tweet at us or find us on the gram at Business Trip FM. And if you're building a company in psychedelics or looking to get more involved in this space, email me at greg at businesstrip.fm. I'm Greg Kubin, and Business Trip was co-created by me and Matthias Serebrinski. Producer and editor is Jonathan Davis. Sound design and engineering came from Zach Frank. Our theme music is by Dorian Love, and additional music credits are in the show notes. This is Business Trip. Thanks for tripping with us. We'll see you next time. So naika ya rika wansi na bidibi hakonga ki pontagi hui ya bi pontagi kaya ya bi pontagi yuda ya bi pontagi pontagi da rua bi niti ya bi pontagi pontayo shamarongaya no da niti.